Right then, so today's topic is kindness. We're looking at the fruit of the Spirit. So we've done love, joy, peace, patience. Today is kindness as we carry on. So, um, so let's pray and then we'll, we'll find out what I've got written down. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the Bible. Father, we thank you that people have laid down their lives to give us this book in our language. Father, we thank you for people like uh, Tyndale and people like that, Father, who would, um, yeah, that gave their life. Father, we, we realise this book is something so special, so important. Father, we thank you that you've given it to us. Father, help us not to neglect it or to, uh, to not think it relevant to us today. Father, I pray that as we open your word, that you teach us things about your um, amazing love for us, your kindness for us, your grace towards us. And Father, most of all, I pray that you'd help us to see the Lord Jesus in the scripture and Lord, to become like him. Amen. So today's topic is kindness. And um, I felt mildly sorry for Jai with the passage that I asked him to read. <laughs> Names like Mephibosheth and Lodabar and Makir, all those sorts of things. So um, the other week when I was speaking, Lisa sent me a message saying, no long words, please. And I thought, you're all right but Jai isn't in two weeks' time. So, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, the passage in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I wasn't particularly familiar with it at all until this week. Um, hopefully after today you'll be a bit more familiar. But I thought we'll start somewhere else. So, I've got a few questions for us to try and answer as we look through. Yes. First one is, it's just nice when it works. What is kindness? And I think kindness is it's a sort of state of showing sympathy or compassion towards something or someone. Hopefully that's an alright definition for you. But I also thought, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Christians and non-Christians can be kind. It's not just something that Christians are. Christians and non-Christians can be kind. And I don't know about you, but I know some non-Christians that are kinder some of the Christians are than some of the Christians that I know. It's just strange, isn't it? If we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit, and if God's trying to grow these things in Christians, should Christians not be like the example of kindness? Or the epitome of kindness at BM? I don't know. Maybe that's something for us to, to think about. And being a Christ, so therefore being a Christian doesn't actually make somebody kind. But it does mean that God wants to show his kindness through each of us. So God wants to use us like a, a channel almost for his kindness to other people. But part of that is we have to decide whether or not we're going to actually let him work through us with this. I've written a, had a sort of a brief uh, think about human kindness and God's kindness. So um, I'll give you my list of human kindness first, see what you think of that. If you said to somebody, are you kind? They might say, yeah, um, I like being nice to people or uh, I might give to charity, I might buy a big issue, I might um, not murder people. Often if you say to somebody, well, people, are, they're bad, aren't they? they? go, I'm not bad. I've never murdered anyone. It's like straight for the big sins. So, not murdered anyone. I might, might give uh, family presents. We might entertain our friends. No, they're all sort of fairly kind things to do. But if we look in the Bible and we see God's kindness, we see the fact that God gives us the sun every day in the rain so that we have food to eat. He gives the, and it says God gives the, the sun and the rain on the just and the unjust. So he's kind to all sorts of people. Without them, we'd have no food, we'd have no plants, we'd have no life. So God sustains life through his kindness. 
He's also really patient with our grumbling. Now, I don't need to give you like personal examples because you can imagine there's a lot of grumbling that I do. But if you look in the book of Exodus, okay, and you see how God brings the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt through the Red Sea, they get through the Red Sea, they've seen the Egyptian army chasing behind them and they get drowned in the sea and God saves them from that. We don't know the exact amount of time, but it's only a couple of verses really that they start saying to Moses, Moses, what are you doing? I'd rather be being beaten with a whip and making bricks and being free. Oh, what have you brought us into the desert to die for? And Moses suffers grumbling for 40 years because he's listening to God, but the Israelites are just whinging and whinging and whinging. I don't know how often you whinge, I tend to whinge quite a lot, so I'll try and stop that. Another thing that God's kind with is God knows us intimately. Now that doesn't sound particularly kind at first, but God knows us intimately. He knows our inner thoughts, our, just our motives for everything. But yet he still loves us. Sometimes I think if people knew my heart and my motives, they sometimes would think, oh, he's not very nice. But God knows those, and he still loves each and every one of us. So God's kindness and kindness in general seem to be a little bit different. So we should move on. So what is the kindness of God? Which is a big question. This is where we come back to the passage that we looked at about David and Mephibosheth. But to really understand what's going on, you need a little bit of sort of history to the, this narrative. And it's a really exciting story. It's, um, it's sort of like all of David's life. It's very, very interesting. There's a bit of sort of controversy in there. There's some um, like rule breaking and lots of fighting and all that sort of stuff. So uh, small boys love that sort of thing. So we're looking at David and Mephibosheth today. So Mephibosheth himself was um, the grandson of a guy called Saul. And Saul was the king in Israel before David. And he was a really, you know, he started off quite well, did, did Saul. He was quite a powerful king. But David, when he was only a little boy, right, that big, I'd imagine, about eight or nine, David was anointed to be the next king of Israel. So if you were the king and you knew that God had already chosen somebody to be the, the next king who wasn't one of your sons, you may not take a great shine to him. Saul didn't know it to start out with. And um, there was a time when Saul used to be sort of tormented and somebody found this little shepherd boy, David, who could play a harp. And he'd come in and he'd play for him and it'd calm Saul down and Saul would be able to rest. But eventually as David grew up a little bit and Saul got older and more angry, there are times when you read through the narrative of David's life when he's in the king's palace there to calm Saul down that Saul gets really cross and he throws a spear at him. I think if you're watching on TV it'd be quite exciting. Like, can you imagine that if you're like, being calmed down by this young boy and you think, right, stuff this, we'll have a spear. And he misses and David uh, manages to get away. But David becomes best friends with Saul's son, uh, lad Jonathan. And Jonathan had three brothers as well. But David and Jonathan were best friends. So much so that Jonathan checked whether at one big feast Saul, his dad, was wanting to kill him or not. And he then sent him a message. And because Saul wanted to kill him at this feast, David had to leave. And Saul was going to then would go on to try and find him and to kill him. But at no point through David's life did David try to get Saul off the throne and take the throne for himself. He always knew that it would be in God's time. David never took vengeance on Saul. And we see it almost best 
There's this part in the story where David, and he's got a few really faithful friends that are going around with him, helping him to, uh, to stay safe, to protect him. They need somewhere to stay overnight, and they find a cave, and they go right into the back of the cave, right into the heart of this cave. Saul's army are out with Saul, looking for David to try and kill him. Night falls. Saul needs somewhere to sleep. So his armies sleep around the mouth of the cave, and Saul sleeps just inside the cave, with David right at the back. And all his friends are saying, David, go in there and kill him while he's asleep. He'll be all right then. And David says, no, it's not up to me to take Saul from the throne. It's up to God to do what he wants in his time. But what David does do, he creeps right up to Saul in the night, gets his knife out, and he cuts the edge of his robe off, just like the, the little... We don't wear robes today. It'd be like taking the sort of corner of your trousers off. And in the morning, when Saul wakes up, David goes up to him, and he says, my Lord, look... I could have killed you in the night, but I didn't. And Saul looks at his robe and sees that the bit, bit of material matches. And he, you know, he lets him go at that point. Anyway, a, a while later, Saul and Jonathan and two of the other sons die in a battle. So David is going to be the next king. So David is brought up to be the next king. There is another son left who tries to um, set up his own kingdom to fight back and get his father's kingdom, but he dies in that attempt. So he's gone as well. We don't know quite how long David's been king at this point when he meets this guy Mephibosheth, but it's been about four chapters. That could be four weeks, four days, four years, however long. We're not entirely certain. It's been about four chapters. But historically, if you were the king and you'd just taken, taken your kingship from a previous family, what would be a really sensible thing to do? If you'd become king... It used to be a different line that was on the throne. What would be the most sensible thing to do, do you think? What was common practice? Any ideas? What would be a good idea? Pardon? Correct, that's what they used to do. Anyone who took power would then go and slaughter the person before them's family because that meant they were safer on the throne. Imagine, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? And if, with that in mind, what is Mephibosheth going to think? I mean, some people, when they took power, would even kill their own brother to make sure their brother wouldn't take the throne from them. But when David gets power, he becomes king. Mephibosheth, as far as we know, is sort of one of the few descendants of Saul left, direct grandson. And he gets this message saying, come and see the king. Normal, it's like normal mind would you be saying, am I being brought before the king so he can kill me? Is he going to kill me and have done and get rid of me? Is that why he's bringing me? Because that's what they would have done. That was a sort of normal idea. So Mephibosheth gets up to David. He falls at his feet and he's a, he's a cripple and he falls before him and he's sort of terrified, I imagine. But what are David's options? He's stood there being the king. He can do whatever he wants pretty much and nothing will happen to him. Mephibosheth, I'll get this name right once at least today, lands before him. David has some options. The options would be kill him, have done, he secures his throne. It's a nice, simple, earthly option. That's one of his options. The next one would be not to kill him, but just sort of send him home. Be, you know, be vaguely nice, say, right, I'm not going to kill you, but I just want you to know that I'm the king. Off you go. But David doesn't do either of those. David acts with God's kindness. He says, no, I'm not going to kill you, for one. I'm going to invite you in. He tells him not to fear. He tells him that he'll be safe with him. He gives him a, pre- a place of privilege, eating at the king's table, and he restores the land to his family that was taken. And through all of this, Mephibosheth is, well, he's a cripple, and back then, 
That would not have been somebody who would have been anywhere near the king's table, let alone even in the palace. But how is this God's kindness? So that's what we're going to try and answer. So God is actually working through David. And the reasons got a few reasons for this. Because when David takes in Mephibosheth into his house, into his house, that was a S's and F's and getting all mixed up now. Takes him into his house. David gains nothing. He loses well, a bit of food and stuff because he's provided for him every day. And he loses a big chunk of land that he gives back to Saul's family. But David keeps his promise. Because he made a promise to Jonathan that he'd look after him and his descendants as he could. So David keeps his promise. David was faithful. David gained nothing. He was faithful to the promise that he'd made. Like God is. God gains nothing by being kind to us. And he's faithful when he keeps his promises. And Mephibosheth is really undeserving. But he's, he's made safe. His family are made safe and secure as well. Because in verse 8 of the chapter, he says, he's got this verse and it says... And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? That's the way he looked at himself. And he said, How are you the king? Why are you the king? Show me anything whatsoever. But then if you think, look at Mephibosheth, he says, A dead dog such as I. Well, he's, first of all, he's a cripple, so he'd been a bit of an outcast. He didn't live with the rest of his family when he was growing up. He was, you know, as near as he could be, a pretender to the throne, but he was brought humble by the king so that's some of God's kindness worked through David the next one is why should I be kind well my answer to this starts off with just looking at the reason that as Christians we should do anything is because we're treated by God the same way that Mephibosheth is treated by David he wasn't perfect he was a cripple he would have been a bit of an outcast the same way that we're, we're people who are full of sin. We've got things in our lives that God isn't pleased with. We do things God doesn't like. And the thing is that all the time, we, as you know, sinful people, we want a bit of glory for ourselves, don't we? We do things and we think, oh well, it'd be nice if, if they said thank you or they told somebody else that I'd been nice to them. Or, you know, we always want a bit of glory for ourselves. And sometimes we don't want to even come to God out of fear. Like I imagine Mephibosheth didn't want to go to David because he was scared he might kill him. Sometimes we don't want to come to God because we're afraid of what he might do when we tell him what we've done. Shouldn't worry about it because God already knows what we've done. He knows what we're like and he's... Yeah, he knows what we've done. We don't need to worry what he might do to us if we come to him and tell him what we've done. We are pretty much, in a roundabout way, a bit like Mephibosheth. Not perfect. Not brilliant. But God in Jesus treats us like David treats him. Because firstly, the really thing, something that surprises me almost is that David goes and he seeks him out. David goes to like, send somebody to find him. He says, go and find me, Mephibosheth. In the same way that God is seeking after us. God wants to come and he wants something to do with each and every one of us. No matter who we are, where we are, what we look like. He wants something to do with us and he's coming out to try and find us. I was thinking it's a bit like... Now, God's almost like jogging behind us. If we're trying to run away from him, God's jogging behind us. For some people, we may eventually just get tired and worn out, stop, and he'll catch us up. For some people, they might turn around and join him. But for some people, they'll keep running and running and running forever so that God can never catch them. But I believe that the Bible teaches that God really tries to seek us out. Nextly, God makes us whole. So Mephibosheth was sort of 
brought back. He was given everything that a normal person would have been given back then by the king. But God makes us holy, takes away the sin that we have, and he makes us perfect. He also makes our future secure. When God says you've been saved and you've received um, new life through Jesus, our future is secure. As John was telling us about resurrection and glorification, those things are absolutely certain for the Christian. If you want Jesus, our eternal life assurance. The next thing is that God invites us to come to him through Jesus. And he invites us to the king's table. Now this you sort of have to come with me a bit on this. What God invites us to, he doesn't invite us just to like the king's table like Mephibosheth was. We're invited to what is called in the Bible the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, I feel sorry occasionally for vegetarians and for teetotals because the Bible, I imagine at the wedding supper of the Lamb will be lamb and red wine. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. I imagine that's probably what it'll be. But what it is, is the wedding supper of the Lamb is the day, as Jai was talking about, when Jesus returns and Jesus comes back finally to redeem his people, to bring his church to him. And it's the picture in the, the Bible of the church is the bride of Christ and there's Christ and one day they'll get married and Jesus is sometimes called the Lamb of God. So it's the wedding supper of the Lamb. They'll be brought together. There'll be this enormous banquet and that is what we're invited to through Jesus. But, in a way, our invitation that we're given for it is one that's written in blood and it's sealed with nails because the cost of making me pure enough to sit at God's table for me to sit at God's table with him means I have to have my sin destroyed my sin has to be dealt with and I have to be pure in everything the cost of that for me to be good enough to stand before God was the fact that Jesus died on the cross Jesus came into this world he was perfect he was born of the Virgin Mary he grew up he didn't sin he, you know, he became an adult he spent 30 years with nobody knowing him not seeking any glory for himself even though he would have known he was a son of God and then he spent 3 years doing his ministry did amazing things and at the end of that he's taken, he's beaten, he's abused he's flogged and he's crucified and he's put in the tomb this is all what Jai was talking about the resurrection he's put in the tomb and when he goes to the tomb when he goes into the grave He's been through the punishment of everything on the cross. It's as though when he dies, he stands before God and says, God, this is the punishment. This is the suffering. This is all the agony that I have taken. I offer it to you as a sacrifice for all those people that I'll save. And God is clearly accepting of his sacrifice because God says, yeah. And he brings him back to life. He gives him his life again. Jesus rises from the grave. He defeats Satan, sin, death. All those sorts of things. All at once from his sacrifice that he gave his life. Jesus went through the physical pain that people will endure in hell. So that we don't have to. If we put our faith and our trust in him. And if we're people who become washed by the blood of the lamb. As he died. If Jesus is the lamb of God. I always think it's a funny phrase isn't it? Washed by the blood of the Lamb. If you were going to, if I took this this shirt after today and washed it in blood, it would not come out spotless and clean. Probably wouldn't come out spotless and clean anyway, because I'm fairly scruffy. But if you washed it in blood, it would just be stained and awful. 
But the thing is, when you're washed in the blood of the Lamb, it doesn't mean that we get, like, dipped in blood. It means that Jesus' blood that is poured out on the cross takes away the stains of sin in our lives. It takes all that away so that we can be made perfect as we stand before God. And for us, as Christians, we want to be able to mirror something of the kindness that Jesus shows to us. Jesus dies on the cross for us. And we can't do that for him because he's perfect and we're not. But we want to mirror some of his kindness. And we want to do it because we love him. And if we love Jesus, we want to be like him. And if we're like Jesus, we'll be doing what he wants us to do. We want other people to know Jesus as well. If we can share the message of kindness of Jesus with other people, they'll see something amazing in him. And hopefully they'll come to know him for themselves. And the other side of it is, why would we... You know, not want to be kind. It's a bit naff, isn't it, when you meet people who aren't kind. They're not particularly nice, a bit grumpy. You might as well be happy and kind and share Jesus' love with people. So, let's look at this last one as we head towards a close. How can I be kind? Well, there's a verse in Colossians, if, uh, if you look through it. And if you're ever wondering where the book of Colossians is, you've got 1 and 2 Corinthians, then you've got A-E-I-O-U, Galatians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. That's how you remember them. Well, that's how I remember them. Anyway, um, where is it? Very helpful, that. Uh, Colossians, chapter 3, it's verse 12. It says, Put on, as chosen by God, uh, as chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. I, mean, I said this last time when we were looking at patience, because it's the same job that, that Paul gives us there, to actually physically put on these things. So in the morning, when you're picking out your clothes, like I said last time, when you're picking out what shirt you're going to put on, what trousers you're going to put on, like, don't just think, will this look alright, but just think, actually, as I'm getting ready to leave this morning, what am I physically, what am I going to be like? Am I going to put on like a, a shirt of kindness and trousers of patience? Or am I going to put on you know, the socks of grumpiness and the pants of being unkind? What are we going to put on? Are we going to be nice as we leave our house? Are we going to show Jesus' kindness to other people? The second part of that, though, is we have to be humble. We have to remember that we're not God. If ever you open the, the advertiser, you know, the Rosman advertiser, and there's a jobs page, and if it ever says, position vacant, God, here are what you need to do. It'll say, firstly, it'll say, can you create the universe out of nothing? If you can't do that, you can't apply. There's only one person who's God, and he's got that job stitched up already. So that's his. And what he says goes, because he's in charge, if we're Christians. So we have to be humble and do what he wants us to do. Sometimes humility is a difficult word to understand. And somebody once told me their definition of humility, and I really like it, so I'll share it with you. And it is this, it's self-forgetfulness. If we're going to be humble, we just sort of forget about what we want in an almost like scatty way. Say, oh, I'll help with that. I don't know what I was doing. Unless it's really important, like you're going to the doctors for a really important appointment, then definitely go. But we can forget things that we don't really need all that much. And we can just help other people. We can put other people before ourselves, because that's what God wants us to do. Another thing is, we can actively look for an opportunity to be kind to somebody. We can take some steps in faith and reach out to be kind to someone. 
It's not always easy, and if you're not used to it, it's yeah, I say it's not easy. It's quite tricky. I've written a few things down um, as just ideas to be kind. But remember that we do these things that are kind because we love Jesus. We don't do any of these things to make Jesus think we're a great Christian. We do them out of love, not out of trying to win points. Sometimes all people need is a bit of a phone call, don't they? If you know something's not right with somebody, you can just pick up the phone, you can ring them up. You can have a word, you can see if they're alright. And if they're not, you can go around, you can give them some of your time. Sometimes all people really need is a hug as well. And there's there's that verse in the Bible that says, um, if you see a brother or sister who's naked and starving, there's no point just saying, oh, be warm and well-fed, brother. That's not Christianity. Christianity is going and giving them something to eat, giving them something that will make them warm. Sometimes people just want somebody to talk to. Sometimes if somebody's not feeling too well, you can send them a card. At the minute, please say this politely, don't send us any cards. We had a um, house group at our growth group on Thursday night at our house. We can sit down just about between all the cards that we've been given for all sorts of different things. We can't like see any individually. We have plenty. But some people, it's amazing, isn't it, to do something like that. I've got a friend in York called Jenny. She's she's an absolute she's a real good friend of mine. She's got dreadlocks, so she's not brilliant. But um she took over from me. I worked in York for a year for the church in York and she took over from me um, and she's done a great job there. And she works now in a school as a support worker because she knows sign language. She's starting a sign language course to be an interpreter. But she, Ofsted were coming into the school, the sort of, um, I don't know, the Spanish Inquisition of school organisation people coming in to like, check up everything was, was alright and all the teachers were getting really stressed. Like, pulling the hair out, that sort of terrified, weren't sure how it was all going to go. But Jenny decided, you know what, I'm going to be, I'm just going to be kind to these teachers. I'm going to, she went home, she's got a load of little bags, put into them one of those little bottles of wine, some little bubble bath, a couple of nice chocolates and something like that, and wrapped it all up. And she went into school and she gave them to all the teachers. And some of them were just over the moon with it. They just couldn't, they couldn't understand why she'd done it. But she just said, no, I just want, just want to be kind, I want you to be able to go home and relieve some stress. But a couple of them, one in particular, was like, why? Why are you doing this? She said, no, I'm, just, I'm just trying to be kind. I just want to share some of Jesus' love with you. I like, yeah, but, but why? Like, what's your... What, why? She thought there was an ulterior motive there for Jenny to do this. And Jenny said to us, we were, me and Jenny and another person organised a, a teenage youth discipleship thing. And, um, and she said, look, I don't do ulterior motives. And she doesn't. If you met her, she's one of those people who's just pretty ordinary, straight down the line. I don't do ulterior motives. I just want to share love with you. I just want to be kind to you. And as Christians, that's what we have to do. We have to try and share kindness with other people without any ulterior motives, trying to share Jesus' love with people. Something else you might want to do is you can go and buy a big issue and have a chat with the people selling them. It's brilliant. Like, and the big issue has a good crossword in the back, just for those people who like crosswords. So crack him on. We did one yesterday. Um, you could go up to somebody who's homeless and buy them a drink and just sit and have a chat. Homeless people have great stories about why they're on the streets. I had a friend in York as well called, uh, he was called Good Luke. We had two people in the church called Luke and he was the good one, so he was Good Luke. Um, not to be favouritist. Um, but I went out with him because he used to go out with the university speaking to the homeless people on the streets. And you take them, you know, 
uh, we take a flask of soup or a flask of hot water and some cup of soup, some cups, some sandwiches and all this, and you'd go and sit and chat with them. And they're amazing. And they'd really happily sit and chat for about 15 minutes, because after that you have to move on because they, they're not getting a, any change at this point. But So they'll have a chat with you for about 15 minutes. And it's brilliant. I mean, you could just do all sorts of other things if you can. You give your old clothes to charity and, and that sort of stuff, which helps. But all the time, if we're being kind, we're not being kind to make God think that we're amazing Christians. We're being kind because we want to reflect Jesus' love to other people. We want people to see that Jesus is the centre of our hearts. And if he isn't, that's where he should be. But being kind is often something that we can do for free. But it's a bit costly in time, effort, affection and desire. But if we've given those things to Jesus, if we've given our time to Jesus, if we've given the effort, our skills, our talents to Jesus, if we've given our affection and our desire to Jesus, Jesus will shape those into making us kind people. So the last thing that's the best thing to do for this sort of thing is we can pray and humbly ask God if he'll grow this fruit of kindness within us. It's not a difficult thing to do, is it? We can just pray and ask God to do that for us. And if he does, we'll see a difference. People will see a difference. And hopefully they'll come to realise that Jesus is the Son of God through our kindness. If when we share our kindness with them, we make sure they know we're doing it because we love Jesus and not just for any ulterior motive. So let's pray, and then we'll finish with the final song. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that he is the kindest person who has ever walked on this earth. Father, we thank you for the example we've seen of David, a king who welcomed a cripple to his table. But Father, more we thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you that he was perfect. Father, we thank you that he died. Father, we thank you that he rose again. And Father, we thank you that he offers us, through faith in him, the option of having eternal life. That day when judgment comes to be washed in the blood of the Lamb, to be seen as clean, to be given our perfect body, and to live with him forever in glory. Father, I pray that you'll make us mirrors of Jesus on earth. Father, you'll make us people who reflect Jesus' love, his kindness, his desire to help, his desire to to save people. Help us to be active in that. Father, I just ask that as we go about it, we'd be people who are wanting to be like Jesus because we love him and not wanting to be like Jesus because we think we'll earn some brownie points with you. Father, I pray as a church as well that we'd be a church that acts kindly, a church that is always seeking to do good to people around it, to bring the message of Jesus to people's hearts and lives. And Father, personally, we ask that you'd help us to do it in our family when it's difficult, in our workplaces when it's difficult. And Lord, to share that love wherever we are. Father, I pray you'll make Jesus the centre of our hearts, our desires and our affections. And Lord, we'd give our time and our talent to him. And let him choose what to do with it. Amen.